Chapter 1. Foundations for Belief in God and His Son Early Christianity consciously adopts from Judaism the monotheistic formula, God is one. According to Mark 12, verses 29 and 32, Jesus explicitly approves the Jewish monotheistic formula. That's from the article on Is, the Greek word for one, in the Exegetical Dictionary of the New Testament. The Church cannot indefinitely continue to believe about Jesus what he did not know to be true about himself. The question of his messianic consciousness is the most vital one the Christian faith has to face. That's from J.W. Bowman, The Intention of Jesus. Jesus defined God for us frequently. He defined God deliberately and simply in a famous creedal statement. Jesus habitually addressed the one God of biblical monotheism as Father, John 17:1, and many other texts. But are churches really listening to Jesus' definition of God, or have they abandoned his view for a traditional idea of God, which Jesus would not have accepted? Kenneth Richard Samples writes, Specific statements in Scripture were used as creedal statements even in biblical times. For example, in the Old Testament, the ancient Israelites used the Shema as a creed emphasizing their uncompromising commitment to monotheism, even though they lived surrounded by a pagan polytheistic world. The Shema, which Jews continue to use today, consists of the prayerful reciting of Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 and 9. Shema is Hebrew for here. And verse 4 appropriately begins as follows. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's from Kenneth Samples, Apologetic Lessons from the Past, the Ancient Christian Creeds. He reminds us of the value of creeds, but we need to be certain that they go back to Jesus himself. The American philosopher George Santayana once proclaimed, Those who do not remember the past are doomed to repeat it. Christians should especially be attentive to the important lessons from the past, for the truth claims of Christianity, which center upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, stand rooted in the facts of history. Contemporary Christians can be enriched greatly by the careful study of Christendom's creeds and of the events that surrounded their formulation. The appropriate use of the creeds can and do enhance Christian education, worship, and evangelism. However, an exploration of the ancient creeds can also reveal some important apologetic lessons for 21st century Christians. Jesus, as the founding teacher of the Christian religion, was no less insistent on the Shema as the guide to true theology and faith. Mark 12, verses 28 to 34. As a Christian, I accept the foundational truths of our faith as revealed in Scripture, the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament. I believe the Bible provides solid divine authority for the truth claims made for the Christian faith. It is clear to me that Jesus and the apostles viewed the Bible as divine revelation, a perennial guide to human beings struggling in an obviously fallen world. Jesus was the ultimate, quote, biblicist, asserting that, quote, the scripture K 
cannot be broken in John 10.35 and conducting a full-length Bible study about himself, his true identity from, quote, the law, prophets, and writings in Luke 24, verse 44. My object is to follow Jesus in his description of who God is and who he, Jesus, is. After all, this is the foundation of our approach to God and worship of him. Paul, of course, was equally solid in his conviction about the inspiration of the canon of Scripture. For him, God had, quote, breathed out the sacred writings, which consequently represented the mind or spirit of God. We find that in 2 Timothy 3.16. Scripture was a divine library designed to instruct us in the will of God. Paul, as an apostle of Jesus, claimed to be speaking under inspiration. And 2 Peter 3.16 designates the writings of Paul as scripture. He was certainly aware of the Jewish creed of Jesus and spoke of his own Jewishness. The God whom he and all the apostles served was the God of Israel, the God of his and Israel's fathers. See Acts 3.13, 5 verse 30, 22 verse 14, and 24 verse 14. There's not a hint that Paul or Peter ever questioned this creed, much less abandoned it. Belief in God as the Father of Jesus and the one God of the Bible is part of the fixed datum of Paul's theology. For him to have altered the creed of his and Jesus' heritage would have required extensive treatment in the New Testament records. Rather like the shattering new truth that Gentiles could become fully part of God's people without circumcision in the flesh, as discussed in detail at the First Council of the Church in Acts 15 and in the book of Galatians. There's not a word in the New Testament about any such revolutionary changes in the definition of God. There's nothing in the recorded ministry of Paul which points to a new definition of who the God of Israel and thus of Christians is. I'm alarmed at the hostility encountered by anyone questioning the dogma of the triune God. Instead of the Protestant principle of free and independent inquiry, there reigns a frightening atmosphere of anger and indignation that anyone might suggest that Jesus was not a Trinitarian. Have we forgotten that our Saviour was a Jew? Have we taken seriously Jesus' lesson that violence is unthinkable? that reasoned persuasion is the apostolic method for teaching truth, that the use of force to compel conformity in matters of doctrine is a rejection of Christianity at its heart. A recent experience involved me in a conversation with a Calvinist pastor. His approach to me on the question of defining God was fierce and condemning. The awful word heretic was used freely, and the accusation was that I and my family were not Christian in any sense. We were worshipping a strange God. The discussion was a frightening reminder of the dreadful events of the 16th century when Protestant leader John Calvin set his heart on the destruction of a young biblical scholar, Michael Servetus, simply because the latter could not accept that God was a trinity and objected to infant baptism. He paid with his life for these beliefs at the hands of one of the most influential of all Protestant reformers. 
The story is a shocking testimony to a brutal murder by burning at the stake in the name of Jesus. And Calvin died unrepentant for his part in the death of Servetus. This event ought to provoke a widespread discussion among churchgoers, especially those who align themselves with the name of Calvin. It's a fearful thing to be associated sympathetically with those whose absence of Christian love is so marked that they consider it right to kill theological opponents. Well, did the Dean of Canterbury, F.W. Farrar, write in 1897, René, Duchess of Ferrara, daughter of Louis XII, was a thoughtful and pious princess and a warm admirer of Calvin. In a letter to the great reformer of Geneva, she made the wise remark that David's example in hating his enemies is not applicable to us. It might have been supposed that Calvin would at once have endorsed a sentiment which only echoed the teaching of Christ, where he said, I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. But Calvin was shocked by the remark of the Duchess. He curtly and sternly answered her that, quote, such a gloss would upset all scripture, that even in his hatred, David is an example to us and a type of Christ. Should we presume to set ourselves up as superior to Christ in sweetness and humanity? The princess was wholly right, and the theologian disastrously in the wrong. It would have been better if Calvin, had he more truly understood the teaching of Christ. Had he done so, he would have been saved from the worst errors of his life, the burning of Servetus, the recommendation of persecution to the protector Somerset, and the omission to raise his voice in aid of the miserable and exiled congregation of John Alasco. But as Grotius truly said, the Calvinists were, were for the most part as severe to all who differed from them as they imagined God to be severe to the greater part of the human race, and unhappily the Pilgrim Fathers and their earliest descendants imbibed these perilous errors, and though they were themselves fugitives from kingly despotism and priestly intolerance, they tortured harmless old women who they called witches, and treated saintly, if misguided, Quakers with remorseless fury. That's from the Bible, its meaning and supremacy. Church history is replete with accounts of the church venting its wrath and even exacting the death penalty from any who would question the creeds established by church councils. This appalling fact should be a matter of urgent concern among students of the saving teaching of Jesus. Brutality in support of a traditional doctrine is unthinkable if the mind of Jesus is to be taken as our guide. On another occasion, an organization keen to keep, quote, heresy at bay, announced that a Unitarian Bible college was a theological cult to be avoided at all costs. I will never forget the gasps of some 400 people when the spokesman for orthodoxy told them that though Antony believed Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, and in the resurrection and future return of Jesus, he did not believe that he was actually God.
Many of the ladies in the audience rushed up to me and my wife at the end of the session begging us to be saved from an eternal hellfire. I noted that their zeal far outran their knowledge of this subject. They seemed unaware that the apostles of our faith, Jesus, in Hebrews 3.1, had plainly declared his belief in the Unitarian creed of his Jewish heritage. But those simple facts seemed not to matter. Supporting the traditions of their church was the driving force behind this obvious zeal to save us from our catastrophic so-called heresy. Any knowledge of the historical development of their Trinitarian creed was absent from these enthusiasts. I'm thoroughly persuaded that the New Testament writers spoke the truth when they report with one voice that Jesus proclaimed the saving gospel of the kingdom and invited all who came to him to prepare as royal family for royal office in the coming messianic rule on earth. He died for the sins of the world and to ratify the new covenant and three days later came back to life. I'm convinced that he left his tomb and was visibly and tangibly present with those who had known him before his crucifixion. I am pledged to belief in the non-negotiable historical fact of Jesus' return to life as an indispensable pillar of genuine Christianity. Behind the amazing drama of the supernatural origin from a virgin, the gospel preaching and healing ministry of Jesus, his crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and promised return at his future second coming to initiate a new political and social order on earth, is the unseen hand of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was also the God of Jesus. I have no reason to suppose that the resurrected Jesus was imagined by his followers. They had no motive at all for lying about what their senses had taught them to be factual and true. In an unvarnished way, they affirmed that they, quote, ate and drank with Jesus after he rose from the dead. That's in Acts 10, verse 41. God raised him from the dead, and he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Acts 13, verses 30 to 31. I believe that, on the basis of the testimony of those who live closest to those events, and were thus in a position to report them accurately. I have no reason to think that Luke, for example, was inventing fairy tales when he recounted the events of Jesus' supernatural beginning in Mary, preaching ministry, and execution at the hands of cruel, bigoted Romans and Jews. Luke has been proven over and over again to be well informed in his knowledge of history and contemporary affairs. He gives no indication that he has abandoned his attention to report historical events or drifted off into mythology when he tells us that the resurrected Jesus delivered a six-week course of instruction on the kingdom of God to his chosen students, Act 1, verse 3. Jesus certainly did not set a time limit for the coming of the kingdom. On one occasion, he spoke of his followers seeing the kingdom before they died. And this prediction was fulfilled in the vision, Matthew 17, 9, 
of the kingdom. Peter explained later that the transfiguration event was a vision of the future kingdom, the parousia, the second coming. You'll find that in 2 Peter 1, 16-18. When Jesus spoke of this generation, before all the events of his prophetic discourse were fulfilled, he referred not to a period of 70 years, much less to a period of 40 years, beginning in 1948. Generation, in Mark 13.30, here has the sense of present evil society. Brood, compare Psalm 24 verse 6, Luke 16 verse 8, Acts 2 verse 40, and Mark 8.38, which will continue until Jesus introduces the future age of the kingdom of God on earth. Jesus made it quite clear that fixing a time for the kingdom is impossible, he stated that clearly in Mark 13, verse 32, and Acts 1, verse 7. The New Testament also speaks of the second coming, quote, after a long time. You'll find that in Matthew 25, verse 19, and Luke 20, verse 9. The kingdom and day of the Lord is always at hand, as the prophet said, 700 years before the first coming of Jesus find that in Isaiah 13, verse 6. Paul's sermon in Pisidian Antioch presents the Christian facts in a transparently simple way, commanding our attention and belief. I find Paul here totally convincing. Not only does he believe that Jesus came back to life from death, he sees the biblical drama as centering around God and Jesus, not God and God. I quote, from this man, that's David's descendants, God, according to his promise, has brought to Israel a saviour, Jesus. John heralded his coming by proclaiming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was completing his course, he would say, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. Behold, one is coming after me. I am not worthy to unfasten the sandals of his feet. My brothers, children of the family of Abraham, and those others among you who are God-fearing, to us this word of salvation has been sent. The inhabitants of Jerusalem and their leaders failed to recognize him, and by condemning him, they fulfilled the oracles of the prophets that are read Sabbath after Sabbath. And even though they found no ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him put to death, and when they had accomplished all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and placed him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. These are now his witnesses before the people. We ourselves are proclaiming this good news to you, that what God promised our ancestors, he has brought to fulfillment for us their children, by raising up Jesus. As it's written in the second psalm, You are my son, this day I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, never to return to corruption, he declared in this way, quote, I shall give you the benefits assured to David. That's why he also says in another psalm, quote, You will not suffer your Holy One to see corruption. 
Now David, after he had served the will of God in his lifetime, fell asleep, was gathered to his ancestors, and did see corruption. But the one whom God raised up did not see corruption. You must know, my brothers, that through him forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you, and in regard to everything from which you could not be justified under the law of Moses, in him every believer is justified. Be careful then that what was said in the prophets not come about. Quote, Look on, you scoffers, be amazed and disappear, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will never believe, even if someone tells you. That's in Acts 13, verses 23 to 41. I find Luke's and Paul's courtroom testimony style compelling and rational. I have taught the New Testament for many years in a Bible college, working through the text word by word in a classroom setting, perusing the Greek originals, consulting the best biblical scholarship available in English, French and German. The New Testament displays those noble qualities of honesty, purity, courage and zeal which commend themselves and win our approval in other fields of endeavour. It is, of course, eminently likely and reasonable that the great Creator would not leave His creatures in ignorance about His plan for humanity. He has, in fact, revealed His plan through Holy Scripture, the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament, and supremely and finally in Jesus' gospel preaching and teaching and that of His apostles. The resurrection of Jesus simply validates the whole story putting God's own stamp of approval on the entire drama still to be completed. It would be much harder for me to believe that the Bible writers were fraudulent. What motive did they have for creating such a brilliant hoax, if that is what the New Testament story about Jesus and his followers really is? Imagine if their story was deliberately false. What could they possibly gain by reporting with joy their conviction based on face-to-face -face contact with Jesus who had come back to life after being killed, that God had performed a marvellous creative miracle by restoring the crucified Messiah to life. If God had created man in the first place, what objection could one have to his bringing a man back to life? Why would those heroic early Christians incur the wrath of hostile religious and secular leaders by trading on what they knew was a grand falsehood that their beloved leader had been restored to them visibly after he died. Is it anything but a form of insanity for people removed from the events by some 2,000 years to claim that they know better what happened than those who are able to consult actual witnesses to the Christian story? Though I believe with a passion the extraordinary and yet eminently sane claims of the New Testament writers I have the strongest reservation about what the church, claiming to be followers of Jesus, later did with the faith of those original Christians. I believe that history shows an enormous difference between what has through the centuries come to be known as the Christian faith and what we find reported as first century Christianity. I think that a radical deterioration and distortion took place soon after the death of the Apostles John, who died around the end of the first century 
being the last of them. Proof of the significant change in the belief system which overcame the post-biblical Christians is nowhere more obvious than in the shift which occurred in the matter of defining who God and Jesus are. The heart of Christianity, as it was first brought to us by Jesus, was permanently and adversely affected. I think that the church suffered severe damage when the one God, the Father of the Lord Jesus, was turned into two and three, and the human Jesus, the Son of God, was obscured. I think I can demonstrate the radical change for the worse which took place by simply citing the clear evidence of what Jesus said about God and himself in relation to God and comparing it with what the later institutionalized church, after centuries of internal struggle and often violent argumentation, proclaimed as its view of God and Jesus. As is well known, what claimed to be the correct or orthodox view about God and Jesus was finally set in stone in the church creeds, notably at the Council of Nicaea in 325 and Chalcedon in 451. This was only after centuries of bitter and bewildering argumentation. Even after Chalcedon, disputes over how to describe who Jesus was continued, and according to the frank admission of a contemporary expert in the history of Christianity, quote, the demand for a complete reappraisal of the church's belief in Christ right up to the present day is an urgent one. That's from Alois Grillmeyer's book, Christ in Christian Tradition. This urgent need for reappraisal is highlighted for me in a dramatically interesting quotation from an informative book by a learned professor of systematic theology at Trinity Evangelical International University. Towards the end of a full historical examination of doctrine, he deplores what he sees as a current departure from the classic creeds which have formed the backbone of traditional Christianity. He thinks we are moving, regrettably, beyond the Council of Chalcedon, which formulated in 451 AD the famous two-nature doctrine about Jesus. In theology, we have to say that we now seem to have entered a post-Chalcedonian era. The transformation this development portends is greater than anything that has yet happened within Christianity. It can be compared only to the transition within biblical monotheism itself from the unitary monotheism of Israel to the Trinitarianism of the Council of Chalcedon. The difference is symbolized by the transition from the prayer Shema Yisrael of Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, to the confession of the Athanasian Creed. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. This is a staggeringly interesting comment. The professor asks, was the transition from the personal monotheism of Israel to the tripersonal theism of Nicaea, a legitimate development of Old Testament revelation. Christians affirm that it is, holding that Nicaea represents a fuller unfolding, not a distortion of the self-disclosure of the God of Israel. What strikes me as astounding in this quotation 
is firstly the professor's candid admission that the shift from the unitary monotheism of Jesus to the Trinitarian doctrine of Nicaea did happen and was indeed momentous. What alerts me to the risk of an uncritical acceptance of, quote, tradition, for tradition's sake, what raises my suspicions and drives me to the investigation conducted in these chapters is this, that the professor has not apparently noted that Jesus was the one fully ascribing to the unitary monotheism of Israel. Jesus gave no indication that a, quote, transition to another form of, quote, monotheism is conceivable or legitimate. Indeed, how could Christians possibly imagine moving beyond the creed which Jesus stated to be the heart and core of the true knowledge of God? The professor I quoted appears to ask the question whether it's permissible to abandon what Jesus taught about God, about Jesus' theology. He seems untroubled that we have in fact moved away from the theology of Jesus. He seems not to be concerned that Jesus spoke of the Lord our God, the God that is of Israel, who is definitely not a triune God. The question raised by Professor Brown provides the thesis of my inquiry. My findings may cause something of an uproar, but if they do, I think a good purpose may be served. I will argue that any failure to listen to Jesus as our rabbi is perilous. His teachings are laced with warnings that his words are to be heeded. To an alarming degree, I believe churchgoers are approaching faith mindlessly, blithely unaware of where their beliefs come from. In that condition, I fear they may be wide open to deception, and deception must be avoided at all costs, and, quote, the love of the truth for salvation, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 10, promoted as the first priority in the Christian life. If bumper stickers on cars are to identify their drivers as those who have got Jesus, should we not be absolutely certain that, in fact, they have not drifted away from the actual Shema-reciting Messiah Jesus of the first century? Historical background. The church-going public seems little interested in the history of dogma, and they are prone to misinformation in that vacuum of information. Even the history of the development of the Trinitarian concept of God has been misrepresented. This raises my suspicions, as well as confirming my belief that both Jesus and Paul spoke prophetically when they warned about coming apostasy from the faith. Jesus, understanding human nature as well as the cunning of Satan, as he did, wondered if the true faith would manage to exist up to the time of his future return. Luke 18, verse 8. Paul spoke of original truth being replaced by imaginative fictions masquerading as Christianity of the popular clamor for, quote, heaping up teachers who preach to people not truth, but what they want to hear, 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. What if those predictions have been realized? The fudging of historical fact does not convince me of the objectivity of some authorities in their approach to the truth of our controversial subject. R.P.C. Hansen, a leading expert on the development of doctrine, 
deplores the travesty which goes under the guise of a true account of how the traditional doctrine of God was developed. Professor Hansen rehearses the well-known battle over God and over orthodoxy. I quote, The version connected with the Arian controversy, which lasted from 318 to 381, to be found until very recently in virtually all the textbooks, runs something like this. In the year 318, a presbyter called Arius was rebuked by his bishop, Alexander of Alexandria, for teaching erroneous doctrine concerning the divinity of Christ, to the effect that Christ was a created and inferior God. When the controversy spread, because Arius was supported by wicked and designing bishops such as Eusebius of Nicomedia and his namesake of Caesarea, the Emperor Constantine called a general council at Nicaea, which drew up a creed which intended to suppress Arianism and finish the controversy. But owing to the crafty political and ecclesiastical engineering of the Arians, this pious design was frustrated. Supporters of the orthodox point of view, such as Athanasius of Alexandria, Eustathius of Antioch, and later Paul of Constantinople, were deposed from their sees on trumped-up charges and sent into exile. But Athanasius resolutely and courageously sustained the battle for Trinitarian orthodoxy, almost alone until, in the later stages of the controversy, he was joined by other standard-bearers of orthodoxy, such as Hilary of Poitiers, Pope Damasus, and the three Cappadocians, Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nazianzus, and Gregory of Nyssa. Ultimately, by the aid of the Emperor Theodosius, right prevailed, the forces of error and wickedness represented by the Arians were defeated and crushed, and the formulation of Constantinople in 381 of the revised Nicene Creed, 325 AD, crowned the triumph of the true faith. This conventional account of the controversy, which stems originally from the version given of it by the victorious party, is now recognized by a large number of scholars to be a complete travesty. At the beginning of the controversy, nobody knew the right answer. Professor Karen Armstrong makes the same telling point. Quote, Today, Eris's name is a byword for heresy, particularly since his views are connected with those of the Jehovah's Witnesses. But when the conflict broke out, there was no officially orthodox position, and it was by no means certain why or even whether Arius was wrong. That's from Professor Armstrong's book, A History of God. There was no orthodoxy on the subject of how divine is Jesus Christ. It is a priori implausible to suggest that a controversy raged for no less than 60 years in the church over a doctrine whose orthodox form was perfectly well known to everyone concerned and had been known for centuries past. That's from RPC Hansen's article, The Doctrine of the Trinity Achieved in 381. Hansen then adds this interesting fact. The Creed of Nicaea of 325 produced in order to end the controversy signally failed to do so. 
Indeed, it ultimately compounded the confusion because its use of the words usia, meaning essence, and hypostasis, meaning person, was so ambiguous as to suggest that the fathers of Nicaea had fallen into Sabellianism, the view that God is one person in three modes, a view recognized as heresy even at that period. Hansen concludes his historical survey by stressing that the mistakes and faults, quote, were not confined to the upholders of any one particular doctrine and cannot all be grasped under the heading of a wicked Aryan conspiracy. The most serious initial fault was the misbehavior of Athanasius in his see at Alexandria. That brief account of the struggles which led to the standard concept of God in Christendom should alert the reader to the fact that none of what led to, quote, orthodoxy bears the marks of the peaceable and truthful spirit of Jesus, whose concept of God provoked none of the chaos to which that later history testifies. What is needed is a fresh look at the whole question about God and the Son of God. This book hopes to make some small contribution to that much-needed overhaul of the basic structures of, quote, received Christianity. I want to show you that the alteration which affected the very core of the belief system of Jesus and his earliest followers has had tremendous and far-reaching effects on the history of religion. Whole bodies of believers in God have been set in opposition to each other because of disagreement over the most important of all theological questions, who is God and who is Jesus and what is his relationship to the God of the Bible. The issue to be dealt with in these chapters can be boiled down to this. Does Jesus' transparently simple and scriptural declaration that the Lord our God is one Lord, Mark 12, 29, really warrant the centuries of disputation as to who God is? Or have churches simply rejected their Jewish founder and saviour at the most fundamental level? Is Jesus' statement about the identity of God really that hard to understand? Is it really some incomprehensible mystery? Or have we introduced a fearful complication into Jesus' definition of God? Does the creed, as so many modern apologists for orthodoxy tell us, really defy description and remain inscrutable and not accessible to the laws of language and logic? Is Jesus' creed negotiable for any reason? Has the church, rather than the Bible, created a problem about who God is and then spent its energy needlessly trying to unravel its own enigma? Is there perhaps also a deplorable anti-Semitic prejudice against accepting the Jewish Jesus and his creedal definition of God? If so, the church needs to confess this and reach out in reconciliation to others whom it has rejected as, quote, heretics. The church needs to reassure itself that its traditions have not ruled out of court Jesus' own basic belief about the identity of God. What I'm not saying is that we can understand everything about God. I am proposing that God has clearly revealed to us in the Bible how many he is. Agreement on this question could vastly ease the tensions now existing between major religious groups, 
A start could be made towards seeing who the real God is. Quote, the only true God. Another quotation, the one who alone is truly God, as Jesus called him in John 17:3 and John 5:44, and what he has revealed in his unique son, Jesus. Are not Christians supposed to be following Jesus Christ? And if so, why are they not unanimously reciting his creed? Could it be that a departure from Jesus' creed brought on the church an inevitable confusion, a penalty for disturbing the proper understanding of who God is? Does the New Testament sanction thousands of differing and disagreeing denominations? Recent statistics tell us that there are some 34,000 differing Christian denominations. Does the New Testament ever sanction a departure from the clear teaching of Jesus about who God is? I propose that the church, driven in some curious way by a distaste for things Jewish, has jettisoned the very Jewish creed of its Jewish founder and saviour, Jesus. The results of the giant ecclesiastical muddle which has ensued are visible all around us. Church history is replete with embarrassingly obvious disputes, excommunications, even killings, all over the question of who God and Jesus are. These conflicts are not the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus never sanctioned the killing of other believers over doctrine, yet this has happened. Protestants and Roman Catholics have been guilty of amazing cruelty to any who challenged their theological authority, even to the point of killing their opponents. Rather than reach out with love and patience towards those perceived as, quote, heretics, the Church took up the physical sword against them, and information about such senseless murder in Jesus' name has often been kept away from the Church-going public. Christianity is fragmented into many thousands of competing groups. Billions of Muslims and Christians have mutually exclusive understandings of who God and Jesus are. And Jews, along with Muslims, are forbidden by their adherence to their strict monotheism to make common cause with Christians who claim that the Jewish Messiah who has come, and is coming again, was God. For Jews and Muslims, that would obviously imply belief in two gods. And belief in two who are God is not monotheism. That would be a clear departure into paganism. My thesis is certainly no new invention. Scholars of the first rank, interested readers would enjoy tracing the anti-Trinitarian passion of Sir Isaac Newton, the poet John Milton, and Christian philosopher John Locke, and of course thousands of other dissenters. The literature is vast. Scholars of the first rank, past and present, have in their various ways made the same complaint as I offer in this book, but their works are read mostly by specialists or hidden in inaccessible libraries, and their words seem seldom to make any impact outside the world of academia. The average pew-sitter knows little or nothing about what they have said, nor do most churchgoers seem to care much about how they came by the beliefs they hold. Somehow the fact that so many good people have held those traditional beliefs for thousands of years seems to make them unquestionably true. A soporific approach to matters of what is often disparagingly called, quote, doctrine, seems to have overcome the church community. 
Very few who sit in church hear sermons explaining how and why it is that they gather under the auspices of a triune God. They do not know the chaotic history and the interminable wrangles which led to the accepted creed, nor do they know that the concept of God as three persons was not taught continuously from the New Testament onwards. The Trinitarian idea of God emerged as fixed dogma only after a prolonged struggle lasting for several centuries. The victorious party was not necessarily in the right. The victorious party suppressed the protests and often the literature of its opponents. The question about who God is ought at least to be open for reasoned discussion on the basis of biblical and historical facts. Those who know that God demands that we love him with all our minds and strength should feel the need to be informed. To do less is to risk being deceived. At present, most of those who profess and call themselves Christians are in the habit of saying that Jesus Christ is God. This is the current opinion. It is taught by the church. It is laid down in the creeds. But if you come to examine the average Englishman, you will find that he holds this opinion in a rather vague and loose sort of way. He has not thought out exactly what he means by it, nor considered just what it involves. If you asked him whether God is our heavenly Father, he would almost certainly answer yes. If you then asked him, well then, is Jesus Christ our heavenly Father? He would certainly say no. But if you went on, are there then two gods? He would entirely repudiate the suggestion, so that he carries about with him in his mind these four propositions. One, Jesus Christ is God. Two, God is our Heavenly Father. Three, Jesus Christ is not our Heavenly Father. And four, there are not two gods. Yet he has never considered how to reconcile these four separate opinions of his together. It has probably not occurred to him that they are inconsistent with one another. The average Englishman has not troubled himself with the matter. That's from Richard Armstrong's book, The Trinity and the Incarnation. The inconsistency and contradiction involved in the view of many believers suggests that something has gone awry at the basic level of defining God and Jesus. Tradition as a danger. Jesus warned almost daily about the dangers of ecclesiastical traditions. He knew how easily they can pose a threat to divine revelation in Scripture. Jesus observed that God, his Father, was seeking men and women to worship him within a framework of spirit and truth. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. John 4:24. This would mean that acceptable service of God must be informed by revealed truth and not be marred and rendered ineffective by untrue tradition, however hallowed and cherished. A wise scholar, the late Professor F. F. Bruce, observed this in correspondence with me many years ago. People who adhere to belief in the Bible only, as they believe, often adhere, in fact, to a traditional school of interpretation of sola scriptura. Evangelical Protestants can be as much servants of tradition as Roman Catholics or Greek Orthodox only they don't realize it's tradition. 
That's from a letter of F.F. F. Bruce in June of 1981. Being an evangelical, quote, born-again Christian is in itself no guarantee that one has learned the Christian faith from the Bible rather than traditions imposed on the Bible. Surprisingly, it seldom seems to occur to faithful members of the churches that their own fundamental taken-for-granteds may be entirely at odds with the teaching of the one whom they claim as the pioneer and originator of their faith, the Messiah Jesus. That striking mismatch between Jesus' definition of who God is and the almost universal definition of God on the books of mainline Christianity should be a matter of concern for all who claim that the Bible is the only ultimate standard for believers. I'm confident that a glaring difference in the definition of the deity authorized by Jesus and the definition acquired by church members today is demonstrable. The facts are not very complicated, though the introduction of alien views of God and his Son has made them appear dauntingly complex. There has been a massive departure from the, quote, simplicity presented by Jesus himself. His creed, his definition of the true God, is lucidly simple. It asks simply to be believed. Creeds remind us of the basic framework of our religion. Many important English words are derived from the Latin language. This is particularly true of theological terms because the ecclesiastical language of Western Christendom was exclusively Latin for more than 1,000 years. The term creed comes from the Latin credo, meaning I believe. The opening line of the Apostles' Creed in Latin reads credo in Deum, I believe in God. Creeds are considered authoritative pronouncements that set forth in summary form the central articles or tenets of the historic Christian faith. Four formal creeds have become known as the ecumenical creeds of Christendom. These creeds, which were formulated at various points in church history, include the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and the Creed of Chalcedon. That's from Kenneth Sample's article, The Ancient Christian Creeds. Creeds then are statements of belief in concise form, reminding those who gather in church week by week of the substance of their convictions about God, Jesus, and salvation. Many of us remember for a lifetime the words of the creeds we recited dutifully in church, not that we necessarily understood what we were saying, but our weekly utterance seemed to have gained an untouchable sanctity by its sheer antiquity and by the immense learning and weight of unbroken tradition with which apparently it was backed. How many of us could have explained how it was that Jesus had, quote, descended to hell? That seemed to be the last place he ought to have gone to in view of what we understand by hell. No one bothered to explain the complete shift in meaning which had taken place in the word hell. In the case of Jesus, it meant in Scripture simply that he had gone at death to the place of rest where all the dead are. The church seemed somehow to tighten its group on us by allowing the creeds to transmit an atmosphere of mysticism, even incomprehensibility. Perhaps they were really not meant to be intelligible. The same anti-electoral approach to religion seems to prevail when some Roman Catholics request 
that the Mass not be celebrated in English, but as earlier in Latin. They apparently prefer an unintelligible church service because they think its very mystery draws them closer to God. Could religious belief really be so rational, people ask, and logical, that it could be conveyed in intelligible words? On the other hand, Jesus seemed to reason and dispute in a tight, logical fashion as he sought to defend his claims against fierce opposition. Jesus obviously argued from the Old Testament, the Bible of his time. Would not a Christian do the same thing, adding the New Testament scriptures to his source of divine information? And if he claimed to believe in scriptural words understood in their normal, logical and grammatical sense, would it not be rather suspect to hear theologians telling us that language is inadequate to explain the mystery of the Trinity? The Bible never hints at the inadequacy of the inspired language used by God to reveal who he is, not to mystify us. Christianity, it is assumed, is based on the recorded teachings of Jesus, who claimed to be the Son of God and Messiah, congratulated his leading disciples for their brilliant God-given insight in recognizing him as such, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Matthew 16, verses 16 to 18. On that impregnable rock foundation, Jesus promised to build his church. He thus provided the central basis for sound views of who he was, guarding against the ever-present threat of rival Jesuses, distortions of his true identity, or of other claimants to religious devotion. The New Testament world of thought may well seem strange to us in the 21st century. Do we still view the battle for truth as a constant life and death struggle? Jesus and Paul obviously did. Neither Jesus nor Paul was advocating just good morals or a refined humanism. People are not persecuted and hounded for such programs. Jesus warned his followers that they would have to take up their cross daily and he meant the cross of crucifixion. They would have to expect opposition from, quote, the establishment, which had proven so intractably hostile to him as the Messiah of Israel. Most startling of all, Jesus foresaw the worst form of persecution arising from a religious quarter. I quote, the time will come when anyone who kills you, disciples of mine, will think they are doing a holy service for God. John 16, verse 2. Such a situation can arise only if a huge deception of religious people has occurred. Jesus the Messiah and Son of God. Our New Testament records report unanimously that Jesus claimed before his followers, as well as before Jewish officials at his trial, to be the Messiah promised by his own Hebrew heritage in the Hebrew Bible. Jesus defined Messiah from that library of writings we call the Old Testament, whose limits Jesus defined precisely as, quote, the law, prophets, and the writings, Luke 24:44. These precious documents had promised from the beginning that a unique savior, king, and final prophet would be born to Israel. Jesus obviously treated the Hebrew Bible 
as a repository of divine authoritative truth about what his God, the creator and God of Israel, was doing in the history of humankind. Jesus' central role in the unfolding divine plans was his unique position as, quote, the Christ, the Son of God. Based on the understanding of that staggering truth, his own followers were to be united in one church, the assembly of the faithful, Matthew 16, verses 16 to 18. Their confession of Jesus was as the Lord Messiah, the promised son of David. Some discerning members of the public appealed to him as Lord, son of David, Matthew 15, 22 and 20, verse 31. Paul was convinced that recognizing Jesus as originating from the family line of King David was an essential part of the saving gospel, 2 Timothy 2, verse 8. The heart of the apostolic message of Christianity was, and remains, that that Jesus, or Yeshua of Nazareth, was indeed the long-promised Messiah. To accept that fact was to place oneself on the road to salvation. To reject it was to oppose the will of the God of Israel who had sent his Son as the long-awaited Savior and Messiah. One cannot go more to the core of the issue than by reminding ourselves of what Jesus considered absolutely primary and fundamental. Our loyalty to Jesus demands that we take him very seriously when he spoke of the rock foundation of the church he founded Jesus was intensely interested in who Peter thought he, Jesus, was. Various public opinions were held, but Jesus wanted to assure himself that Peter had the absolute truth about the identity of Jesus. It is at this point that Jesus could have so easily said, I am God, and on this rock I will found my church. That affirmation appears to be required today for membership in the mainline churches, but Jesus said nothing at all like that. Once again, we suggest that the churches have betrayed their rabbi and master by departing from Jesus' own clear definition of what is fundamental to faith. Who do you say that I am? Jesus inquired of the leading apostle, Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, was Peter's confident reply. This correct creedal answer delighted Jesus. Blessed are you, Peter. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. On that rock foundation, I will build my church. Matthew 16, verses 15 to 18. Could anything be clearer than the mind of Jesus on this central question? Surely not. Not a hint or word about Jesus being God himself. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Both titles appear in the Hebrew Bible, in Psalm 2, a key messianic passage. The Christ and Son of God in that psalm is the King whom God is going to place on Mount Zion, to whose authority all the nations are advised in their best interest to bow. Jesus is called Christ, that is, the Messiah, 527 times in the New Testament. Such overwhelming evidence ought to convince every reader of the New Testament Jesus is to be identified as the Son of God, the Messiah. Jesus declared that this designation of him and no other 
provides the rock foundation of true belief. Peter's confession is the ultimate Christian confession since it gained the enthusiastic approval of Jesus. He is, quote, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Sons of the living God was a prophetic title for Israel, the nation, Hosea 1 verse 10, Romans 9 26. It is unthinkable to imagine, therefore, that Jesus was claiming to be God. The shift from Messiah, Son of God, to Jesus as, quote, God. Lee Strobel, in his well-known investigation of the Christian faith, spoke with evangelical scholar Ben Witherington. The conversation proceeded as follows. Strobel asked, Jesus tended to shy away from forthrightly proclaiming himself to be the Messiah or Son of God. Was that because he didn't think of himself in those terms or because he had other reasons? No, it's not because he didn't think of himself in those terms, Witherington said. If he had simply announced, Hi folks, I'm God, that would have been heard as, I am Yahweh, because the Jews of his day didn't have any concept of the Trinity. They only knew of God the Father, whom they called Yahweh, and not God the Son or God the Holy Spirit. Two comments are necessary. Yes, Jesus exercised a restraint before the public about his identity as the Messiah. It was a politically charged title. The New Testament nowhere downplays the political role of the Messiah as God's commissioned agent for establishing a new political order on earth at the second coming. Jesus, in fact, stated that the gift of royal position in the coming kingdom was the heart of the new covenant. Matthew 19, 28 and Luke 22:28 to 30, where the promise of royal office is covenanted to the disciples. Jesus left not a shadow of doubt in the minds of his chosen followers about who he was. We have just seen that Jesus viewed the understanding of him as the Christ, the Son of God, as the essential basis of the Christian faith, the rock creed. Peter was warmly congratulated by Jesus for his insight. The New Testament confirms that truth every time it refers to Jesus as the Christ, which of course happens over and over again. He is in fact introduced to us in Luke 2.11 as the, quote, Lord Messiah. Even before that, Elizabeth, as an expert in messianic affairs, greeted Mary as the mother of my Lord i.e. the Messiah, my Lord, of Psalm 110, verse 1. Secondly, Witherington concedes that belief that Jesus is God, a member of the Trinity, is impossible according to the records of Jesus' teaching. He is absolutely right when he states that if Jesus had said, I am God, he would have meant, I am Yahweh, the God of Israel. The claim to be the God of Israel would have been nonsensical. No Jew could possibly have understood it, much less accepted it as true. Nor did Jesus believe he was Yahweh. He claimed to be Yahweh's son. And Witherington is absolutely right to say that Jews of Jesus' day knew nothing of a triune God. Such a concept would have been a radical and shocking idea, even a blasphemous innovation. 
This is essential background information and fact as we proceed with our investigation. Who then did Jesus think was God? Jesus himself claimed in conversation with a Jew, as we are going to see in detail, that he subscribed to the Jewish unitary monotheistic creed, the Shema, the Hear, O Israel, of Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. The Shema proclaimed that God is one person. That really settles the whole issue we're discussing. Jesus is on record as reciting and affirming that strictly monotheistic creed of the Jews. Mark 12, 28-34. He also said that salvation is of the Jews, and we Jews, Jesus said, know whom we worship. John 4.22. And everyone should know that it was not a triune God. Jesus invariably identified his Father with his own God and that of the Jews. Quotation, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is your God. John 8, 54. Amen indeed to Witherington's correct statement. The Jews of Jesus' day didn't have any concept of the Trinity, but neither did Jesus. He believed exactly the same as his colleague Jews about the central affirmation of Judaism that God is a single person. The creed of Jesus ought to be the creed of the church. That it is not should be cause for alarm. Jesus was a Unitarian, believing that God the Father alone was truly God. John 17, verse 3. The issue is very clear. How faithfully has Jesus' understanding of God and of himself as the Messiah been relayed to us over the many centuries since Peter uttered his historic words about the critically important identity of Jesus as Christ and Son of God? Matthew 16, 16 to 18. I want to propose that essential elements of that rock foundation of truth have been lost to churches. The transmission of the most central of all spiritual information, the identity of God as Jesus defined him, and Jesus' own identity, has suffered a subtle and amazing distortion. And this distortion of original truth was well underway as early as the middle of the second century, a little over a hundred years after the death of Jesus. Earlier, the apostles had battled hard against the various counter-ideas which threatened to obscure who God and Jesus are. Soon after their death, with the stabilizing power of apostolic authority removed, a subtle invasion of new and contrary views of Jesus and his identity, as well as the identity of God affirmed by Jesus, took place. The son of David, God's unique son, was strangely replaced by a foreign Gentile God. The result of that later theological thinking, enshrined in the creeds, continued to hold sway over the minds of countless dedicated churchgoers. They are mostly unaware of the shift in understanding at the heart of the faith which has taken place. They have been persuaded in large numbers 
to believe that the New Testaments they carry to church, containing the very teachings of Jesus and his agents, the apostles, are the same teachings as they have learned in church. I think that assumption needs to be challenged in the interests of plain honesty, as well as the need for us all to share the mind of Christ. I propose that the foundational belief of all true religion has been shifted off base by post-biblical church authorities who actually refused the creed which Jesus had declared the most important spiritual truth of all. A whole school of professional opinion, remarkably confirmed by leading British and German Bible specialists of current times, backs my central thesis that what we now have as the faith is, in important respects, quite unlike the faith known to Jesus. We are urged to embrace the faith which Jesus' half-brother Jude was so keen to preserve. The faithful are to cling tenaciously to original Christianity in the face of opposition, which within the first century was attempting to undermine, quote, the faith once and for all delivered to the holy people, Jude verse 3. The challenge of discipleship. If you're prepared to accept the New Testament records as a faithful account of the teachings of the Jesus of history, Jesus of Nazareth, are you willing to search out Jesus' view of the authentic Orthodox creed? Does our acceptance of Jesus as Lord extend to a willingness on our part to accept and embrace with enthusiasm Jesus' teaching about who God is? That would not seem to be unreasonable, unless, of course, we invest in the Church the right to supersede the opinions of Jesus. That could not be, you may say. But don't be too sure that such a transference of authority from Jesus to church has not in fact occurred. It may be easier for Protestants to see this obvious transfer in the Roman Catholic Church, but has it happened in their own circles too? It is safer to inquire of the original documents themselves, which are now so readily available to us. Calling Jesus Lord presumably means believing and obeying his teachings, especially in the matter of the central creed which defines God. Calling Jesus Messiah, Lord Messiah, my Lord, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, or our Lord Jesus Christ, is obviously the practice of early apostolic Christianity. It is universally attested in our New Testament. Calling him the Lord God, our Lord God, or your Lord God, is unknown to our New Testament. Lord God, the Lord our God, or the Almighty, are biblical titles reserved exclusively for the Father of Jesus and are never used for Jesus. This fact arises from the fundamental creed of Jesus and Israel that God is one single person, designated the God, or Theos, not less than 1317 times in the New Testament. The article in Greek points to the one God recognized by the writer and those he writes to. Obviously, the Son, who is another person, 
could not possibly also be the Almighty Lord God. A catastrophic departure into polytheism would be unavoidable. That would amount to two gods. In the strictly monotheistic atmosphere in which the New Testament documents were produced, that is just a self-evident fact, hardly needing to be stated. Today, however, with the crushing weight of church tradition bearing down on us, we need to look again at how Jesus described the God whom he loved and served. The last letter of the first and last words of the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4 are in large type in the Hebrew Bible, creating the word witness. If the capital D at the end of Echad, one, were altered to Resh or Ar, making the word meaning other, rabbis say that you destroy the world. This could turn out to be profoundly true. Jesus calls the world back to Israel's God.